Remain standing for our gospel lesson, also our sermon text from John 15. I'm only going to read the first eight verses. Listen carefully to God's gospel. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word, because it's living and it's active, and it teaches us how to think, how to live, and how to believe. Do your work in us by your spirit, the same spirit who inspired these words and the same spirit who lives in us and among us. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. You can open your Bibles to John 15. We'll be there mostly today, starting in verse 1. Jesus liked to use illustrations, word pictures, parables, object lessons to drive home spiritual truths. In John 15 here, the Lord uses a grapevine to teach about the process of sanctification in the life of believers. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy. It's the process of becoming more like our Savior, Jesus, in the way we think and believe, act, behave, It's the process of being conformed to the image of the Son, as Romans 8.29 puts it. Sanctification is the process of bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is your growth in grace and godliness. Sanctification is what happens when God works in you and causes you to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 in John 15, Jesus uses the setting of a, of a vineyard to illustrate both the mechanics of sanctification and the necessity of sanctification. Now, when I say the mechanics of sanctification, I mean the process, how it works, how God accomplishes personal holiness in believers, in those vitally connected to Jesus, those vitally united to Jesus. 
So the passage speaks of the mechanics of sanctification as well as the necessity of sanctification. Now we don't know all the reasons that Jesus chose a vine to explain this theological point. Maybe, maybe they, they had seen one recently or they could see one as he was talking to them. But probably the main reason is that in the Old Testament, Israel was thought of in terms of a vine. The first part of Isaiah 5, a passage you should, you should know, you should be familiar with. If you're not, go, go read it today. It's a poem or a song about Israel's failure to be a fruitful vineyard. Isaiah 5.2 calls Israel the choicest vine. Verse 7 says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the plant he delighted in. Here in John 15, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be that kind of vine. Israel was a false vine, but I'm the true vine. I grow fruitful branches. The branches in me that don't bear fruit are cut off, cast into the fire. The branches in me that do bear fruit are pruned so that they produce even more fruit. Verse 1 says, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser or gardener. This is the seventh and final I am statement In John's gospel, let me remind you of the first six. Number one, I am the bread of life, 635. Number two, I am the light of the world, chapter 8, verse 12. Number three, I am the gate, 10, 9. Number four, I am the good shepherd, 10, 11. Number five, I am the resurrection and the life, 11, 25. Number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life, 14.7. And now, number seven, I am the true vine. The, the Greek word order goes like this. I am the vine, the true one. Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. So the emphasis there is on the, on the word true. I'm the true Israel. I'm the fulfillment of that vine in Isaiah 5. If, if you're connected to me, if you're in me, if you're united to me, you'll have true life, everlasting life. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. God the Son is the vine, the trunk, the, the thoroughfare of spiritual nutrients. You and I are the branches and God the Father is the gardener, walking around his, guard, his garden, his, his vineyard, making sure it's pruned. Now, the, the picture quickly emerges of a vineyard full of branches that are organically connected to the true vine, who is Jesus. So the sap, the sap that runs in, in his veins are also running through the veins of true believers, giving them spiritual life. The Father is is the ever-present gardener who cares for the branches. He makes sure that they produce as much fruit as possible. And so the dominant theme in this passage is fruit-bearing. 
the mechanics of fruit bearing and the necessity of fruit bearing. In verses 2 to 8, we see that the mechanics of bearing fruit is twofold. A Christian bears fruit, number one, by being pruned by the Father, and number two, by abiding in the Son, or living in, remaining in the Son. So look with me in your Bibles at those at, at four verses that, that say this. We'll look at verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 8. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And finally, verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. You see the emphasis there on bearing fruit. The, The identifying mark of a true branch is that it bears fruit. Jesus says in verse 2 that he cuts off the branches in him that are connected to him, that have been baptized, that go to church, that bear no fruit. So if you claim to be a true branch on the true vine, and yet you bear no fruit, then your claim is suspicious. It's false. The absence of fruit disqualifies a person from being, from calling himself a true believer. So if you're a baptized Christian who goes to church and believes all the right things, confesses all the right things, reads all the right books, but but there's no fruit in your life, you should reconsider the authenticity of your faith lest you be cut off and thrown into the fire. So that's the message of Jesus in this text, in this passage. This is sobering. And it drives all of us to consider, to examine our lives for fruit bearing. Once again, the the song of the fruitless vineyard in Isaiah 5 instructs us, listen to the opening verses of that poem, Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Or as one translation puts it, bad fruit. That's the idea. God looked for his vineyard to yield grapes but it yielded bad fruit. And what was this bad fruit? Isaiah 5, 7 gives the answer. The Lord Almighty looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. The fruit that God was looking for, in a nutshell, was righteousness, holiness. A people living as though they were set apart. By God. 
But that's not what he saw when he looked at his vineyard. He was looking for inner qualities. And the same is true of John 15. The fruit that Jesus has in mind is a holy life. A true branch is one that reproduces in itself the life of the true vine. Let me say that again. A true branch is one that reproduces in itself the life of the true vine. To simplify things a bit, the fruit Jesus is looking for is the fruit of the Holy Spirit listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These qualities don't need to be perfected in you in this life, but they must be present in you in this life. So what happens if none of this fruit is present in a baptized Christian who goes to church every week? According to Jesus, he will be severed from the vine at some point and thrown into the fire. So if you belong to God, there will be, there must be something of the life of the vine in you. There must be in you a measure of Christ-likeness. Again, not perfected, but present. The vine's sap must be flowing through you. The spiritual vitality of Jesus must be filling you with spiritual life. The life of the Holy Spirit. The fruit that Christ is looking for is his own life in you. Sanctification is necessary. Bearing fruit is necessary. Living obedient faith is necessary. Holiness is necessary. It doesn't save you, but it's necessary to have living faith. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live at peace with one another and to be holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I was talking about personal holiness there. Of course, we, we must have as the foundation the holiness, the perfect holiness of Christ. That's what saves us. That's what rescues us. That's what justifies us. Saves us from sin. But if you are saved, when God saves you, he builds on that foundation personal holiness in you. It's just as much a work of God. It's not your work. It's 100% God's work. But it, but it must be present, that personal holiness. So if you want to see the Lord at the end of your life, then you must live what Hebrews calls a life of holiness between now and then. Scripture is clear, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In addition to emphasizing the necessity of bearing fruit, Jesus lays out the mechanics of bearing fruit. He tells us how it happens. First, it happens because the Father prunes true branches. Second, it happens because true branches remain in, abide in, stay vitally connected to Christ. You'll bear fruit if you remain in Christ, and you'll bear fruit if the Father is pruning you. So let's, let's look at each of these. We're going to look at each of these in turn uh, over the next two or three weeks. Next week, we'll come back and look at 
abiding in Christ. Today we'll just spend the rest of our time looking at the purpose of God's pruning. The purpose of God's pruning. Let's go deep just on this one idea in verse 2. The Father prunes true branches so that they bear fruit. The second half of verse 2 says every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The health of any grapevine is directly related to how, how much pruning it gets by the gardener. A vine will never produce anywhere near its potential produce, its, its potential in grapes, if it's not properly pruned. And sometimes the pruning appears severe. The process seems severe. If you've, ever, if you've ever watched someone who knows what they're doing prune back the branches of a tree or, or prune away the unfruitful portions of a plant or, or even a flower, it can seem like a drastic process, right? Is it really necessary to cut that much back? To the inexpert eye, like mine, it can seem wasteful and unnecessary, but to the experienced eye, it's the necessary path to healthy growth and abundant fruit. The same is true of the Christian life. When God gets to work pruning you, you'll know it by the presence of pain. So when God is is doing his work in you, his pruning work, you'll know it by the presence of pain. Plants don't perceive the Pain of pruning, obviously, but people do. A telltale sign that God is pruning those, you know, those dead twigs, those offshoots that don't need to be there. A sign that He is doing His pruning in your heart is the presence of suffering and setbacks and disappointments and hurt. God's pruning hurts, but it kills sin and produces. Fruit. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Verse 71. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees or your statutes. Without affliction, the psalmist says that he went astray. With affliction, he was brought back. To the, to the narrow path, he learned God's decrees. And so, so sometimes God's pruning prevents us from going astray and brings us back to where we need to be. But other times, according to John 15, 2, God prunes us simply because he wants us to bear even more fruit. So it's not that we're on the wrong path. It's just that He wants us to bear even more fruit than we're already bearing. See, no one's as zealous about about turning you and me into a fruitful branch as God is. No one's as zealous as God is about your sanctification. So whatever the reason for the pruning, because he just wants more 
fruit from a fruitful branch or because he wants to keep you from going astray. Whatever the reason for the pruning, our natural response is to try to escape it, right? We want to avoid it. Engineer life so that we don't feel it. No one likes getting cut with, with the pruning shears, or the pruning knife. And oftentimes we find ourselves falling into that trap that trap of longing for the day when in this life the pruning will stop. We're always tempted to look to that next stage of life, to marriage, to having kids, to having the dream job, to retirement, whatever. We're tempted to look to some future phase or situation of life because that's when we'll finally be able to be content. And free from the troubles and trials and pains of life. But when we fall into that trap, we forget that God can afflict us. No matter how perfect our life is. And no matter how well we've done engineering it so we can't be afflicted. He can take away earthly comforts and joys in a moment. That's just, that's just not hard for him to do. We also forget the promise of Jesus that in this world we will have troubles. Most important, though, we forget that God is not nearly as zealous about eliminating suffering from our lives as we are. It's just not his concern the way it is ours. God is far more zealous than you are about turning you into a fruitful branch, which means that he's far less zealous than you are about taking away your afflictions. You see, without afflictions, without the pruning process, the good grapes just won't grow. And God wants good grapes, maybe probably more than you do. Malcolm Muggeridge uh, put it provocatively in his, his famous book, Jesus Rediscovered, quote, Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be a ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of man to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered, end quote. Now, we know that there's not going to be any suffering in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, and that's a good thing, but there also won't be sin. Suffering is a necessary repercussion of sin, but it's also a necessary restraint to sin as long as sin is present. You see, much of what is virtuous in you and in me is only possible because God prunes us. He afflicts us for our own good. The C.S. Lewis Institute has an online article titled The Cleansing and Transforming Power of Aslan. And most, most of the article is a long excerpt from The Voyage of the Don Treader that I'm going to read in a minute where... Aslan prunes Eustace, the the dragon, and turns him back into the the boy that he was created 
to be. Now, listen as I read this lengthy section from, from, from Voyage because it illustrates beautifully the point here about pruning. So this is Eustace telling his cousin Edmund what had happened to him, his story. You could say his testimony. I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough. But it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came close up to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. And Edmund asks, you mean it spoke? I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same, and I knew I'd have to do what it told me. So I got up, and I followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains. There was a garden, trees, and fruit, and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe in it, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. But just as, I was, just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that, there were all, that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they were before. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it Hurts like Billy. Oh, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. That's what God's pruning looks and feels like. We'd rather do it ourselves, 
but we can't. Our, our attempts at pruning ourselves are non-committal and ineffective because they don't hurt. He said it didn't hurt when he did it. Because we're not serious. We're not as serious about our sanctification as God is. Remember those two verses from Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. The opening verses of James teach the same truth. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Whenever your life is full of difficulties, consider it joy. And don't try to squirm your way out of them. Don't look for the nearest escape. Because when your faith is being tested, you're growing in perseverance and in Christian maturity. The necessity and goodness of God's pruning, it's easy for us to understand it and even accept it as long as we're talking about the pruning of someone else. But this teaching of Christ only becomes hard to understand, hard to accept, when I'm the one being pruned. And the main reason it's so difficult for me to understand and accept is that when I'm being pruned, it feels as though God is far off. In extreme suffering, it might even feel as if God has abandoned me. Our feelings tell us that when God is pruning us, God is not with us or for us. He's not paying attention to us. He's not near us. But did you notice how many times Eustace said that that Aslan came near for this task? And so the opposite is true. God is never closer. He's never paying more attention to you than when he's got his knife in his hand and he's cutting off the life-draining dead stuff from your heart. So when a loved one dies, when your business takes a, receives a financial blow, when you don't get the job that you wanted or you lose the job that you had, or when your child becomes a source of grief, or when your parents become a source of grief, or, or when a pandemic wrecks your plans, or when you don't know how to get rid of the sadness that's taken up residence in your chest... It is during times like this that we need to, to remember and believe that God is closest. There's no, way, there's no way to know this except that God's word tells you that it's so. You, you don't know this experientially necessarily. During these times, your experiences often tell you that God is apathetic or maybe even antithetic toward you. Either he, he doesn't care about you or maybe even he's against you. But God's word says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, in spirit Psalm 34, 18. You can know with confidence then that when you face those trials of various kinds, God's pruning will hurt you, but it won't harm you. It will cause you pain and discomfort, but it won't damage you. God is good with the pruning knife. He never makes a mistake. He never cuts too close. 
his unfaltering hand remains ever steady. Kent Hughes says, when the gardener does his pruning well, he leaves little more than the vine. Similarly, the more we are pruned, the more of Christ there is in our lives, end quote. When God prunes you, Christ becomes more in your life and you become less. And as God reduces you, he increases your capacity to bear fruit. You see, the more of you there is, the less fruit there is. And the less of you there is, the more fruit there is. When God prunes you, he's getting you out of the way, and he's making way for the fruit that he wants to yield in you. We're going to end today with the words of a very powerful hymn by John Newton called, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. It's a song about how God afflicts us and and even nearly drives us to despair and even allows our sin and depravity to assault our souls, all for the purpose of setting us free from self and pride, all for the purpose of magnifying Christ, all for the purpose of destroying the schemes of earthly joy, all for the purpose of driving us to God alone for comfort and joy. So if you get an, an opportunity this afternoon, maybe after you've read Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, then uh, listen to this song. You can find it in multiple versions online. And meditate on its words. It's called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow by John Newton. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this... He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings, laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your pruning work because we know that it's a part of the way you bring us to salvation In Christ, to bring us to fruitfulness and faithfulness to the end. We thank you for doing that good work in us, for causing us to will and to work according to your good pleasure. And we pray that you would continue to sustain us, that you would continue to prune us, because we depend 
completely on your preserving grace. And so have your way in us, have your will in us. Transform us by the power of your word and the power of your spirit into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask for this and we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.